0: Hello and welcome to The Boss Podcast, episode 98. I am Kurt Bailey, bringing you another wonderful talk from the Business of Software conferences that will inspire and educate you. This week, I am joined by April Dunford. The Business of Software podcast, sharing sessions from our conferences and discussions with software people that will make you think. Find out more at businessofsoftware.org. April is an expert marketing practitioner turned executive consultant. She's an author and a globally recognised expert in positioning and market strategy. She spends her days helping technology companies make their complicated products easy. As startups, we are often competing against larger, more established players that can outspend, outmarket and outsell us. But it doesn't have to be this way. In this talk, April will show you how you can take your competitor's biggest strengths and turn them into weaknesses. Have listening.
1: I so I I put this presentation together, and um, you know originally I think we were going to do this live, right? And I had more time, and <laughs> and so uh, then I made it shorter. And now I have no idea how long this presentation is. I've been sick as a dog all week, so. I'm just going to kind of wing this and hopefully people like it. Should I just go Mark? Go. Okay. So, um, my, my thinking on this was, I I wanted to talk about competition and, um, the different kinds of competition we have in a startup and how you compete against different kinds of competitors and, uh, specifically, it struck me thinking about this, that we have um, a problem competition wise in that, you know, in marketing, we talk about how, you know, we need to, we need to get known or considered. So our products need to get on kind of a short list and then we need to get selected, um, you know, from the short list. And then we need to actually do the deal, which is a surprisingly hard stage of this thing. And that's kind of our kind of uh, vendor-centric view of how this flow works in some ways. And on the customer side, there's sort of parallel bits to that, right? Like if I'm looking for a solution, first I got to narrow down a short list and then I got to figure out Okay, well, which which one am I going to pick? And then I've actually got to adopt it, like meaning I got to buy it. I got to switch. I got to do all that stuff. And if we think about this, we have kind of, it, it, we, we're we not used to thinking about it this way, but we do kind of have different competition at each stage of that. So in the first stage where we're trying to just get on the short list, we've got to figure out how we're going to stand out from the 9 million other things out there that a customer could put on a shortlist. So we have this competition, which is kind of like the hordes. <laughs> and I can't spell hordes. <laughs> so it's the other horde, but work with me, I'm sick. And, uh, and then, secondly, um, you got to get selected. And what's interesting is, you know, whenever a customer narrows down to a shortlist, there's usually a big guy you got to worry about that's creeping around and they might not even be directly competitive with you, but there's usually the giant and you got to worry about that. And then lastly, folks got to, got to actually do the buy and make the switch. And you run into this kind of other weird competition, which I'm calling the ghost, but I'll, I'll get to that one when we get there. Um, but if we think about the first one, which is this how do you stand out from everyone else? Um, it's funny. Sometimes when I talk to startups, people tend to fall into two camps. Uh, they either tell me they have tons of competition, and that's that's one of their main problems is their space is so crowded, um, or they tell me they don't think they have any competition at all. And uh, the ones that think they don't have any competition, I think, are generally... Um, wrong <laughs> they do have a lot of competition they're just not maybe thinking about it the same way as customers think about it so um it, we've seen this slide I, i've used this slide a lot just to kind of freak people out about <clears throat> how crowded markets are and this one is uh scott brinkler's marketing technology landscape so this is it, it, one guy's attempt to model just one tiny corner of the software universe is just just things to solve marketing problems and this is last year's version or maybe even the year before and there's 7000 companies on here and so i've had companies that sit on this chart tell me that they don't compete with anybody <laughs> and that may be true for the small thing that they do but from a customer's perspective a customer's looking at it and it looks like this and somehow you got to figure out how you're going to stand out from all of this now, some people come and you know, I show this slide and they'll say, oh yeah, my market's not like that. My market's different. And so I like showing other ones. Like this is the sales tech landscape and um, this is just as bad. And I, I had this guy come and say, oh no, I'm in AI and that's newer. So it's there's not as many competitors there. I'm like, nah, there is actually, here's another one of these charts. And then I had this guy come and, tell me oh it's different if you're in like weird little niche thing like and the guy told me he was in the drone drone tech market and i was like i bet you i could find one of these for the drone tech market and then i did there's the drone tech market looks bad too um so even if even if you're in kind of what you would call an obscure market this doesn't look so good in terms of the hordes. so what do you actually do to beat them and in my opinion uh The first thing you have to think about is you basically only want to fight where you can win. And that sounds like obvious advice, except that if I look back at my own career and and companies where I worked at, we we were often unintentionally positioning ourselves into markets where we were never, ever going to win. you might wonder how do people like, why do we get into that mess? And I remember having this conversation with a CEO of mine where I was like, why did we never think about this before? This was after we had fixed it. And the conclusion I came to was this is that often as startup people, we create a product with a market category in mind, meaning I wake up in the morning and I say, you know what sucks? email sucks. So I'm going to make better email or I'm going to make better chat. I'm going to make a database that's way better than the databases out there. I'm going to do better CRM and I'm going to make a better car. And then I get the thing out there in the market and people like some of the stuff and they don't like some of the stuff and we muck around with it and it changes. And eventually I've got this thing that doesn't look anything like what I originally started to build, or at least it's significantly different. And at the same time, my market has actually changed. My competitors are adding things and taking things away. And I got new competitors moving in and old competitors moving out and all sorts of stuff is changing. And so all this stuff has changed, but me as the creators, the people inside the company, we kind of don't notice. And we still think about it as, you know, it's still email, it's still a database, it's still a car. And, and customers are looking at it like, I don't know, man, <laughs> you're calling this thing a car, but I, I'm not so sure it's a car anymore. I feel like it might be a murderous robot. So sometimes we will position, be positioning ourselves in this way that we originally thought, um, and it doesn't necessarily play to our strengths. So I'm gonna give you two examples. I'm gonna give you a stupid example and I'm gonna give you a less stupid example, but humor me on the stupid example on this. So here's a stupid example. Pretend we're not in tech uh, anymore. What what we actually are are bakers. (laughs) And and say I'm a baker and my, my jam is chocolate cake. That's my thing. I'm a world's greatest chocolate cake maker. And I wake up one morning and I'm like, you know what? I'm the greatest chocolate cake maker in the land. I'm going to innovate the hell out of some chocolate cake. And so I wake up and I'm like, you know what? I'm going to innovate chocolate cake. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take the chocolate cake. I'm going to make it kind of, I'm going to make chocolate cake that I can drink a coffee in one hand and eat chocolate cake in the other hand. So I want this kind of portable chocolate cake so I can be drinking coffee, eating cake, walking down the street. It's going to be amazing and then I monkey around with it and I, I come up with this thing here on the right-hand side. I don't know what I'm calling it yet. This is my amazing cake innovation. And so I'm so proud. And I got test customers and they love it. They've been with me the whole way through and they're eating this portable cake thingy. It's amazing. So I decide I'm gonna call up the gal from Starbucks. I'm gonna pitch it to her because they, they got coffee and they probably want this, this cake thing. Uh, So I'm going to pitch the Starbucks lady. So I get the Starbucks gal on the phone uh, and I'm going to pitch her my revolutionary cake. All right. So this is how I pitch it. I get on the phone. Hey, Starbucks lady, I got this thing. I got this idea. I'm going to make amazing revolutionary cake. And so here's how I came up with the idea First, I'm the world's greatest cake maker. And then I thought, you know what? Wouldn't it be cool if we could take this cake but we could eat it but without a fork? It would be fantastic. We'd eat it with our hands kind of and we'd take like a cake, not really a cake, like a small morsel of cake and we'd make it portable. And we'd so we put like a handle on it. Not really a handle, kind of more like a stick. And then I'd take this and I'd have this amazing revolutionary cake on a stick thing. It's gonna be fantastic. Everybody at Starbucks wants it. It's a revolutionary next generation cake 2.0 super cake. Now, if I'm a Starbucks lady, I'm listening to that and I'm like, no, no, that's not what it is. That is not revolutionary cake. That's franken cake, man. That's cake doing things cake wasn't meant to do. Uh, And why do I think that? I think that because you told me it was cake you positioned it as cake. So what wins a cake contest? The cake is cake in the land, man. That's what wins a cake contest. Like, and and what makes great cake? I want bigger cake. I don't want smaller cake. I want more frosting. I don't want no frosting. I don't want little balls, sprinkly. And what is that stick doing there? It doesn't belong there. This is cake land, man. And what you, pitched me is fundamentally not cake. So I lose the cake contest. Now think about it. I could have pitched that in a completely different way because I positioned it as cake. It got evaluated like cake, but it doesn't have to be cake. Like, yes, there's cake in it, but what is awesome about the thing that I actually built? What's awesome about the thing I actually built is the freaking stick man and the ball and the sprinkles and the colors and and that is fundamentally not cake and what i should be able to do is position this thing in a way where all my cool stuff makes sense and doesn't sit outside of the actual market category so i could have pitched it like this i could have called a starbucks lady and say listen lady <clears throat> i got this idea for a snack with coffee and it's like a lollipop, except I yeah, want well, to be able to eat it with coffee. So I made it out of cake. That now all of a sudden, everything that's cool about my stuff makes sense inside the market category. So my point in this stupid example is that the best market category you can choose for your product takes your strengths and your differentiators and puts them right in the middle. And we often don't do that. So I'll give you another example that's less stupid. So uh, early in my career, like, you know, this is actually my first ever job I ever had. Uh, straight out of university, I got this job at a startup and we. Uh, the startup was famous for selling compilers. <clears throat> but the compiler business was getting crappy because Microsoft was putting us out of business. Uh, we were doing C compilers at the time. And so anyways, I got assigned to this product. that was a database product. And it, well, we didn't think of it as a database product. We positioned this thing as desktop productivity software, which we thought that was a smart idea. And what it was, was a spreadsheet that you could run SQL queries on. That's how we positioned it. So if you got a lot of data and you want to manipulate it on a PC, not on a server like where you would run oracle and stuff you just want to muck around with some data on your pc but you really like sql we were going to sell you this thing (laughs) and then we sold it for like a hundred bucks a pop on-prem and uh, we thought it was great uh, because we're techie and and we launched the thing and uh and it was a total flop and we sold i think we blew our brains out on marketing and ran all kinds of ads and stuff. And I think we sold 200 copies or 300 copies. It, it, clearly it wasn't gonna make up for the database, for the compiler business. Um, and thinking about it, it, the thing didn't make any sense. Uh, as desktop productivity software goes, Like we were never gonna win that. <laughs> I'm not sure what we were thinking. But uh, anyway, so I was junior. Uh, kid in the marketing department actually product marketing and uh, my job was to call all 250 customers and ask them if they were how mad they would be if we turned it off like basically stopped supporting it so I got this big long list of customers and I spent a month calling that's all I did was call customers and say hey uh how are you doing with our uh, SQL product thingy? And it's funny, I, I, it took me a while to get people to talk to me on the phone, but then I got really good at getting people to pick up the phone and, and return my call and stuff. And so I talked to like 20 companies, and after 20, uh, I, I didn't even find one that even knew they had bought it. <laughs> like, so I said, hey, I'm calling from Wacom. We've got this thing. You bought it. And they're like, I did? When did I buy it? And I'm like pulling up the spreadsheet. On January 27th, you bought it? And they're like, I did? I didn't even know. And so no one was even using it. It was terrible. And they were like, oh, yeah, I spent 100 bucks on that thing. I used it once. I never used it again. Um, but then, uh, so I'm thinking, okay, we're going to turn this thing off. It's going to be no big deal. Uh, but then I, I got called number 21 and I got this guy on the phone and he, and I said, Hey, I'm, I'm calling about this Wacom SQL thing and, and, uh, seeing how you're liking it. And he says, Oh my God, it's amazing. It's like magic. Uh, I, I never, it's fantastic. And he starts telling me what he's doing with it and what he's doing is he wrote a thing for his sales reps and he put it on all their laptops so that they could go out and take orders out in the field. And then when they come back, it would sync back up with his Oracle database. And he's like, Oh, it's amazing. You guys are ANSI standard SQL and it and it works with my Oracle database in the back end and it's amazing. And blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, You're weird. <laughs> like, why nobody else is doing that? And I don't even know what would give you the idea to do that, but okay, so I take some notes on that. Now make another 10 calls and I get 10 more people that didn't even know that they bought the thing and then I find another guy and same thing. He's got written something and he's got people out in the field and they're doing stuff and then they're bringing the the laptop back to the office, syncing up with their Oracle database in the back end. So in the end, I make like a hundred calls And I get five of these guys. (laughs) So I go back to my bosses and I'm like, all right, we got sort of good news, bad news. And I don't even know which one's good and which one's bad. But I got a whole, an overwhelming majority of people do not care if we end of life this thing. So, you know, if we want to do that, we can do that. However, (laughs) I got these five weirdos. Um, that that are doing a totally different thing than we thought that we would do. And if we wanted to, maybe we could try this out. Now, this was not a small change. So as you can imagine, pricing was completely different. Uh, We were going to have to have a sales rep go out and sell this thing. You're not going to sell it one at a time. You're going to sell, like, I don't know, a clump of 100 of them or 200 of them at a time. Um, and we didn't know how to do any of that, but we thought, well, it was worth an experiment. And we did do a little experiment. So we hired one sales rep and we had that sales rep go out and try to sell this thing as essentially an embeddable database for mobile devices. Um, because one of the cool things this thing had was it installed really easy at a really small footprint. So, uh, so we did that and the guy sold a whole bunch. And then we thought, well, this is going pretty good. So we expanded that and expanded it. And then that company got acquired. We got acquired by a developer tool company. Um, And then six months later, that developer tool company based not solely, but a good chunk on the growth of our little database thing Uh, that got acquired by a big database company in the Valley called Sybase. Um, and, And at its peak, Our little uh, desktop productivity tool that then became an embeddable database for mobile devices um, at its peak was a billion-dollar business. And I tell you, right now, every single one of you uh, with a cell phone has at least a copy of that thing on your phone right now. And we almost killed it (laughs) because we didn't know what we had. point of this story is that Sometimes, just because you set out to build one thing um, doesn't necessarily mean that's the best way to position the thing that you actually end up with. Um, So how do we find our best market category if we don't uh, happen to get lucky and have have our customers figure it out for us and then have the junior marketer spend a month calling them and figuring it out Um, And this is kind of a positioning exercise, you know, I'm the positioning lady, you could have kind of expected that but (coughs) think about it, market category is one of the five components of positioning. So if we think about positioning as um, how we define how our product is uniquely uh, qualified to be a leader at something that a well defined set of customers cares a lot about, Uh, Positioning has, at its most basic level, five components, and those components are competitive alternatives, unique features that your product has, the value that you can deliver for customers, um, customer segments are who you're actually trying to target, um, and then the market category – in order to figure out our best market category, we have to figure out the other components of positioning first. And the way we do that um, is we have to kind of start with our happiest customers and they sort of hold the key to figuring out what we are. Um, So much in the way that, you know, I could have, I could have surveyed my 200 Desktop productivity customers, and what I would have found out was, you know, 95% of them thought the product was stupid. Um, and but what it t- it turned out that those 95% that didn't think it was interesting actually had nothing to teach me. But who did have something to teach me were the five that thought it was cool. And If you can separate out the people that are just uh, so-so and the people that really, really, really love your stuff, then they hold the key to figuring out your best market category and where you can stand out against this big crowd. So the way this works is if I take my happiest customers and then I go to them and I figure out, if I if my product didn't exist, what would they do? Uh, that will give me an idea of who my true competitive alternatives are. And then once I understand that, then I can say, okay, if these are my competitive alternatives, what do I have that the competitors don't have feature function-wise? And then I from that, I can map those features to value. And that's going to get me a set of value themes or my value proposition of what I can do that is uniquely different from what anyone else in the market can do. Um, Once I have the value, then I can say, what are the characteristics of a customer that makes them care a lot about that value? Um, That's gonna give me my customer segmentation. And then my market category is essentially the context that I weave around this value my product so that this value is obvious to these people now that's kind of a mouthful of stuff I just threw at you and I can't teach you how to do positioning in 10 minutes but I can teach to you in a book that costs like you know you get an audio book for 10 bucks or something Um, but if you want to go deep on this stuff um, everything I know about how to do that is in this book so that's the first thing Um, making sure you only fight a fight where you can win uh here's the second thing which i think is is interesting and relevant um is and a, and a thing that we don't think about that much is um <coughs> the second way to stand out from the crowd um is to actually help your customers understand how to buy <laughs> and that th- That might sound weird, uh, but it isn't when you think about it. So when you think about it, think about your customers and the thing you sell right now. Have your customers, like your actual person that makes the purchase, has that person ever bought that software before? Ever? Like most of the time it's no. Like I spent a long time selling CRM software and I'm telling you nobody knows how to buy a CRM, you know why? Because they've never bought one before. They've never had to they never had to make a short list. They don't They don't know what features they need or what features they don't need. They don't know what's important to evaluate and what's not important to evaluate. Like the first step, making a short list, like I don't know how the heck customers do it. It's really, really hard. And so you're a customer, you're trying to narrow down a short list. How do you even do that? So you know what folks do? So a lot of times they'll just still get Googling around, you know, maybe they ask their friends and let's say they Google around and then they find this thing. Let's say I'm looking for some marketing software. I find this thing. Is this helpful? <laughs> no, this thing doesn't really help me buy. I mean, it, like, let's say I'm looking for sales enablement software and I go, great, there's a box here, sales enablement software. Oh, look, <laughs> look what's in there. Is that helpful? Does that help me narrow down a shortlist? No, this is a, basically this is, we're, we're just gonna take every sales enablement piece of software in the land, barf it out onto a box and here we go. Like I can't, I can't evaluate all of these. How do I figure out how to make a shortlist? And so people end up doing stuff like this. They end up on places like G two Crowd. Anybody here doing anything with G two Crowd? Do you think that a so G two Crowd for the uninitiated, it's a lead generation site. So they they have this thing where customers that use your software can go in and write a review of it and rate it, and then they'll plot it all on a on a on a chart. Now you might say, okay, this is, this is for example, the G2 crowd grid for sales enablement. And then they put this chart and they'll say, oh yeah, one's top right, whatever, those are better than the bottom left ones. Like, is this gameable? Absolutely, it's gameable, right? Like if I really wanna be on the top right of G2 crowd, I'm gonna put people on my team reaching out to my customers. I'm going to be spiffing them. I'm going to be like, please, please, please go in and write the thing on here. And if you give us four stars, you know, we'll be your best friends forever and whatever. And everybody that's sitting top right in that G2 crowd thing is because they've made a concerted effort to do it. So should a lead generator site own the definition of your market? No. Does anybody think This helps customers figure out who to put on a short list, really. And, you know, this is me being super skeptical, but no, the the answer is no. And if I'm on here, it shouldn't be because this doesn't tell me anything. This is a popularity contest. Now, here's the thing. Customers don't know how to buy. You as a vendor actually know a lot about the space. You know way more about the space than customers do, but you're super, super, super biased. So most times we decide as vendors, uh, customers don't wanna know what we think about the space because we're super biased and they shouldn't believe us. We'll just say our stuff is great and everybody else's stuff is terrible. And, and, and that's that. But here's the thing, your honest point of view on a market can actually be hugely helpful for prospects. If you figure out a way to communicate it that isn't just everybody else sucks and I'm amazing. So I'm going to give you an example of this. So if we go back to, to say that's that sales enablement slide, I show you all back it up. This one here. So I got this company that I worked with that's in this space. This place is terrible. Like, look at everybody in here. It's awful. Um, and then they're here too. They're they're on this thing and you know, working hard at moving up the chain or whatever, but they're kind of small and new, so they don't have as many customers as the, the guys up in the leader quadrant there. So, you know, it's going to be hard to overtake them in the popularity contest thing, even if they were legitimately way better solution than them for certain kind of sales enablement stuff. Um, and what they found is when they were talking to prospects, prospects don't know how to separate out uh, one sales enablement tool from another. And in fact, inside sales enablement, it turns out there's all these different subsegments inside that and the customers don't know anything about it. So they created uh, this thing, which I think is just one of the, one of the most awesome things I've ever seen. So um, they, they built this thing and it's called sales tech explained using donuts. And so they took, they took uh, all the different categories and they basically tried to make this really easy explainer of who you should look at where, So so they've got the list of categories on the left that they've got like sales intelligence and they've got this column that says donut usage. And then like, so sales intelligence is, I know who likes donuts, and here's the top three over on the right hand side. And then sales engagement platform. I manage how often I call email and in mail people about donuts. And then I've got sales dialers. I only call people who like donuts. And then they show the people over here and then conversational intelligence is this. Now, here's what's interesting about this they put this thing together and they put it out on LinkedIn, and the thing went absolutely bananas. Um, and it got like thousands and thousands of shares because it is genuinely helpful. Now, where are they in all of this? Well, they're, they're these little guys called Level Jump. So if you go way down to sales readiness uh, sales readiness slash enablement, that's where they play. And so it says, I trained to become the master of selling donuts. And so there's them and there's their real competition or you know who they consider their real competition. This is their point of view on the market. <clears throat> and if you are a sales leader looking to purchase sales tech, this is actually a thousand times more helpful than this stupid grid or my great big barfed out box full of whatever. Here's another view of it. I like this one too. Um, You might have to move your boxes around uh, to, to see sort of the top floor of this thing, but they did one where they split it out like it's the mall, like the shopping mall. And then they built like, Levels on it. So down at the bottom, they've got uh, sales engagement and they've split that up into conversational intelligence and sales engagement. And that's sort of like the base layer. And then we've got corporate learning above that and then sales enablement above that. And then they have, and you can see where, again, where they sit is up at the top, we've got. Um, uh, content management systems, which are different than sales readiness. And again, they show themselves over here in the sales readiness uh, part of town. And so all this is doing is trying to help customers figure out like, if we're gonna make a short list, here's who should be on your shortlist. Um, so my point is, I don't think we should be scared at communicating our point of view on a market, particularly if we can do it in such a way that's fair and helpful. Um, uh, so that's the hordes. Um, part two is the giant. So, so you know, part one, I got to get on the short list. Part two, I get on the short list. Now I got to figure out how to compete against the giant. Now you don't always have this, uh, you know, sometimes sometimes you're in a market and there, there kind of isn't a giant, but a lot of times there is. So a lot of times, You'll, you'll make it through, you'll get on the short list, but then there'll be some big company that isn't necessarily compete directly against you, but they're just around. So if I use sales enablement as an example, um, Salesforce doesn't really do sales enablement. They don't really have a sales enablement product, but you know, it, your customers are sure as heck gonna look deep and see, is there a way I could get away with doing this just with Salesforce? Cause I already got Salesforce or I'm gonna buy Salesforce anyway. Um, so you do have to worry about how you compete against the giant. And th- this one's interesting, like in my experience, um, the, the easiest way to compete against the giant is you figure out your spot where you win You figure out who your customers are that care about the thing that you've got that's really differentiating. And then you figure out how to use the giant strengths against them. So inside, uh, every big competitive strength is actually baked in a weakness. And just like you can position your own product, you can actually position the big guys. And what's neat about that is they can't position you <laughs> because they don't want it. They don't want their customers to know you exist because you're little. <laughs> and their whole thing is ignoring you. If a big guy ever starts calling you out, that's when you've made it. Because, uh, it, you know, like I worked at IBM for uh, twice, actually, for probably too many years. And at IBM, we never, ever called out a direct competitor unless we knew they were on the shortlist anyway. And so you had to be big and important. Otherwise we were never going to mention you. But as a smaller company, if you know that your customers are always going to look at the big guy, you can call the big guy out all day and they can't even defend themselves. So this used to drive us crazy when I was at IBM, because we would go in and we'd be like, oh, we're IBM. And this is why you should buy us. Uh, You should buy us because we're, we're established and proven and, uh, you know, that whole, you're not going to get fired for buying IBM kind of thing. And we would, people competing against us would come in and say, oh yeah, that's a legacy software. <laughs> and so we'd be talking about being market leading, right? And little niche players would come in and say, yeah, that's like, they're like general purpose, they're unspecialized software. Do you really want that? You know, and we talk about like, like at IBM, we used to, we used to talk about how many features we had and we could do everything we loved. There's nothing we love more than a great big feature function tick box showdown. Cause we could always win that. And how you beat us on that was you come in and you would say, look at all that shit. Nobody needs all that stuff. It's so complicated. Forget about all that. It's, you know, you want easy to use, you want complex. Um, and then, you know, this whole idea that, you know, you see everybody uses us, everybody trusts us. Well, you know, if everybody's using your thing, you can't change it, can't change it that much. And it slows down your innovation. And so all of the things that you as a startup might look at the big company and say, oh, this is all hard to beat. Um, inside of every strengthness that the strength, strengthness the strength that a big guy has, there's a weakness there too. Um, so I'm going to give you an example, and, and uh, I hate using this one, but I'm, I'm going to anyways. Uh, so there's a, a company, so in the education software market, uh, there's a couple of big companies in there. The, the, the big, big legacy provider since the dawn of time is this company called Blackboard. And uh, and there's, there's a company in Canada called Desire to Learn, or DTL, um, that for the last, 10 years or so has essentially been eating blackboards lunch and they've all, they were always the big challenger and, um, and selling, uh, basically <coughs> digital education stuff to mainly to higher ed. So universities and colleges and stuff. And, uh, so this has been going on for a long time. And at this point, d 2 ls you know, big established company, um, uh, doing really well, uh, Blackboard's sort of, you know, on the way out, and D2L's become sort of the leader in this market. And uh, a couple of years ago, this little startup pops up, and they're called Canvas, <laughs> and Canvas shows up, and they they basically decided, and, and they got nothing, basically. Like So if you look at D2L, D2L's got all this stuff, they can do everything, and they sell to higher education to the administrators and the administrators want to be able to see all this stuff and do all this metrics and analytics and all this stuff and so they got all these features plus they got all the things for classrooms and all the things for professors and all this stuff so these canvas guys show up and they're like we're just going to go straight at the professor and we can't build everything because we're brand new and and we're little so what they did was they picked off the five or six key features that a professor wanted And then they went straight at the professor and then they got the professors to sort of go up to the administrators and say, we hate that other stuff. We want to use this, thing. you should kick those guys out and use us instead. And they did this masterful job in their sales decks of positioning D2L. And what they did was they took that strength and turned it into a weakness. So they would do this thing where they'd show this picture of like the new beetle. And they're like, this is us, we're all streamlined easy to use it's so nice it's compact it's just what you need to you get from a to b and those d2l guys they're like this they're just like it's just like an old jalopy with a bunch of just all kinds of shit you don't need it's just all kinds of they show this picture of like a station wagon with all this crap hanging off (laughs) and uh and that was hard because it's hard for D2L to respond to that because you don't want to call out the little guys and say, look, they got nothing. They got nothing over here. Um, but I thought that was a good example of basically taking a strength and turning it into a weakness. Um second thing you can do to beat the giant is 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 you let them win. Like you, you give them something. And this amazes me that more startups don't do this, but, uh, but if you can do this well, where you basically say you define where it is that, you know, you can win and you just fight there and everywhere else you have the confidence to basically, if a if a prospect comes in and they're not in your patch, you give them away and you say, look, uh, you know, the the big guy is actually a better choice for you. But if you're here, we fight all day, but anywhere out there, we're just not even going to fight. We're not even going to try to do it. That feels not good, but, um, I have examples of this and, and you probably heard me give this one. If you've heard me give a talk before, you've heard me give this one about where um, I worked at a company where we did CRM enterprise CRM. And, um, we, uh, we uh, moved from being sort of generic enterprise CRM to being CRM for investment banks. And the power that gave us was that we just ran straight at investment banks. And anytime folks called us that was outside investment bank, which was pretty much nobody, um, we were just like, you know what, you should use the big competitor at the time was Siebel. Um, you should just use Siebel. They're fine. They're they're great. They're the market leader. They're you know they're for everybody. But if you were in investment banking, we fought like hell. And so, so basically, it gave us the ability to go into investment banks and say, you know what, Siebel's great. We actually love those guys. We think they're fantastic. We think they're a real great company. They're two billion revenue. They got eight thousand employees. They're obviously doing something right, right? And they are the undisputed world's best general purpose enterprise CRM. And we just give them that and say, but not for you, not for you. Well, for Wall Street, you, we've got this thing. And so we would defend our patch. But if you were outside of our patch, we just gave them that. We just gave them that. Um, and there's strength in that, in being able to, to call out the other guy, the leaders, And you lose credibility if you don't give the leader credit at all, because your customers are going to be like, what are you talking about? They're 2 billion revenue. Like you can't tell me they suck. (laughs) They're obviously good at something. Um, You need to be able to articulate what it is they're good at and what it is you're good at. When do I pick them versus when do you pick us? Um, Then we got the last one, um, which is the, Ghost um, which is kind of uh, <coughs> this is kind of the worst competition. Um, and for startups this is a really bad one, um, which is basically no decision. So that that means uh, you went into the sales process, uh, you got on the short list, you got selected even maybe um, and then the customer just didn't buy. And we don't talk about that that much. Um, and I dug around looking for some data on this, and um, I got uh, most of the data that I found showed um, in in B2B software, the numbers seem to hover around twenty percent. About twenty percent of deals are lost to no decision. meaning you didn't you didn't lose to competition. you you lost to I don't I can't even make this decision. Um, I came across some great data from these guys, Richardsons, they do sales training, and they um, they do a survey every year, and they try to track this stuff, and so um, last year's survey, they looked at top three challenges for buyers, and the top three challenges are so fascinating, because they, they're all about positioning, so um, the first one is building a case for change. And the third one is combating the status quo, which is the same freaking thing. Um, so basically the biggest challenge for buyers is how do we actually stop doing what we're doing right now to go switch and do the other thing? Interestingly, number two is comparing their options, which is what we just got done talking about. How do I make sense out of this market and figure out how to actually buy this thing? Um, so how do we fight? uh, no decision and no decision is a hard one. Um, <clears throat> essentially what you're trying to do is in sales, we talk about creating a sense of urgency. And usually when we're saying that we're talking about cheesy things like, you know, there's a sale on now and you should buy now because <laughs> there's a sale and the sale ends. So get it now before the sale ends. And Sometimes that works if there's a little bit of inertia, um, uh, what What's stronger than that, though, is figuring out a way to to align what you've got to the main business objectives of your customers um, for that particular time period. And so a lot of that, interestingly, will come down to macro trends. Um, so if you read my book, I got a section in there where I talk about trends, but trends are are things like um, you know, GDPR, for example, was an outside thing that happened a few years ago where all of a sudden companies had to react to that. And so suddenly everybody had, you know, their plan for GDPR. And so being able to align yourself around that, if your software that relates to that would have been helpful because if you can't, then, then everybody's like, well, I'm not spending any money on anything. that's not GDPR related this year. You got to tell me how it fits in there. Um, I have an example of one where I worked at a company that we um, we raised money as an omni-channel platform for retail. Which what that means is um, being able to do stuff like order online and pick up in store. If you're big retailers right now have one stack for online and one stack for in store, and so we were going to be this back end glue that glued it both together. Um, the problem with that is when we went in to talk to folks about it, uh, we, we got into this never ending meeting hell because, um, it didn't align with a very specific goal that the business had. So, if you looked inside the retailers, they had e-commerce goals and they had in-store goals and we sat in the middle. <laughs> and so we kept getting bounced around between the e-com people and the in-store people and back and forth and no one could make a decision. And so all our deals got sort of stuck in limbo and how we cracked out of this was we said, look, we are we need to attach ourselves to something that looks more like a real priority for these businesses right now. And so when we looked across uh, all the things that we could enable with our software, it seemed clear to us that one of the things we could we could enable straight away and easily was um, mobility for sales associates, which is very different positioning than what we had raised money on. But we um, we tested a bunch of different things and that seemed to be one. Like if we went into a big retailer and said, hey, do you think that your sales associates three years from now are going to be carrying a tablet in their hands? All the retailers said, yes, we do. And then we'd say, well, what are they going to have on that tablet? And nobody knew. And we were like, well, here's a bunch of stuff you could do. You know, we could we could let you do endless aisle shopping, which we, we could let you do comparison stuff. We could have deep, deep product information here. Your sales associates could be a trusted advisor in the store. This is gonna help you beat Amazon, blah, blah, blah. And so that changed the conversation for our customers a lot in that we essentially gave them a really easy first step by aligning ourselves with a trend and saying, this is why you have to do this right now. Um, and so in my opinion, that's how you combat the ghost. Um, so this is the end. Um, uh, so but this is the end of my talk. So uh, to summarize it up, I, I, the, the point of this thing is I think you've got these real three kind of different types of competitors and there's different ways you need to think about beating them. So the first one is I gotta get on a short list and I gotta, I gotta figure out how to compete against the hordes. And to do that, I gotta position deliberately. Secondly, I got the big guy in my market and I can beat them by turning their strengths into weaknesses. And then the last one is I've got this no decision and I'm gonna beat that by aligning myself with things that are super important for my customers. And that's it, I'm done. It's just silence. <laughs> <laughs> so awkward. Okay.
2: Oh wow. Um. So, <coughs> I'm not sure where we are with that. Bravo. So number one, thank you for <clears throat> getting through, and um, it felt like you were suffering there uh, um, at uh, at times. We certainly weren't. Oh, really, sorry. Absolutely. I, I'm
1: sorry if I suffered. <laughs> no, 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 no. I just, I just,
2: I really felt for you and. Uh, I know the word, uh, you know, there's a, there's a lot of love for you in the room here, um, uh, not the room, the, the, the event. So, uh, great news, um, you didn't run too short, um, it was all killer, no filler, bad news is we're pretty much out of time. Um, and I have a sneaking suspicion that we have.
1: Oh, sorry, we were well. Uh, we didn't start on time. We started twenty late. So I was watching the time, but I thought I had forty. So I guess I didn't.
2: Okay. So well, I'll uh, I'll see what we get. So I sure. I guess my 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 question or my my thinking here is that there are a ton of questions, um, and I know there are a bunch of people that want to want to ask things. It was it was. Um, Fantastic. Is there a
1: way we can we can do it later or something? Anyway, I'll yeah. let you I'll let you figure so, it.
2: out. Well, well one thought would be if we um so we've obviously recorded it um would you be open in a week or a couple of weeks or some time in the future to do an hour as a as a follow up because I think we could easily take up uh, Sure. Uh, that sort of that sort of yeah. time. What uh, what does anybody think because we can we can kind of dig some Yes, please. I think that will be. Um, I, I'm just. I'm just sort of nervous that when we start opening the floodgates on questions here, we're going to get absolutely uh, um, inundated. Um, we'll have one um, because uh, this is from Matt Godfrey from uh, Redgate, who I think you know anyway. Um, and, hey, uh, Redgate Software. Hey. Um, <laughs> They uh, and he got this in really early. So if you're if you're open to doing a a, you know follow up hangout or something when you're feeling a bit better and
1: no definitely yeah yeah, no we could definitely we we could definitely do that
2: that would be amazing. But uh, let's let's. uh, I'm
1: stuck here in quarantine anyway, man. uh, So it's not like I'm going anywhere.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Wow, there's gonna be so many so many new new uses of zoom and working from home and uh, i guess some people still be using skype and whatever but uh, uh, yeah i think uh, people's lives are, are, are going to be different for a little while um let me give a uh, just quick question here um, any practical advice on how orgs and teams should go about identifying their happiest customers
1: yeah so so it, it, that and it's a loaded it's a loaded thing happiest because it's not just happiest it's like a better way to think about it is best fit. So, cause some, here's the thing. We have this in, in Canada in particular, like everybody's happy, <laughs> like, you know, like, and if you ask customers in particular in Canada, you say, are you happy? They'll say, yeah, we're happy. We're happy. Yeah, we're good. And, you know, and, and th- 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 we're so freaking polite. Like, we, you know, we won't tell you if we're unhappy. Best fit customers are different, though. And so here's how I usually do that in a very practical way. So um, you can do things like net promoter score, you know, and that has its own issues. But, yeah, but Jared's then, coming
2: up next. So uh, Jared's spool. So. <laughs> so he will, he, he loves
1: net promoter score well okay a lot of people some people do some people don't so there's (laughs) net promoter score net promoter score is a bit of a blunt instrument but it but it's easy to administer it people tended you know it's it you get high response rates because it's easy and so you can use net promoter score to find out who's who's kind of you know happy-ish right that's that's my initial thing but that does not give you an idea of whether or not they're good fit that just tells you they're happy so they're, yeah. they're more likely to be good fit than not, but there's gonna be bad fit ones in there that are super happy, mm. but they're terrible fit customers. And so how I would do this, and this is literally how I would do this. I do net promoter score. And then I would take the list of everybody who's super happy and I would take it to my, um, my salespeople and say, who on this list is good? Now, a salesperson thinks good means closed really fast, didn't ask for a discount, um, uh, 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 intuitively got what you did, didn't take 15 calls to get it done. And it would never fail that like the salesperson would look down the list and say, oh yeah, good fit, good fit, good fit, bad. Bad. No, they're doing weird. No, no, not them. And then you go to customer success and you do the same thing. Who's good fit here? And customer success would be like, oh, like these guys, they're they, they are literally trying to make the software do something it was never meant to do. They call us every day and they want us some weird feature that no one else is ever, ever going to use. Like, and, and you take those off. And then I would end up with this list of customers that you know, is is probably a pretty good fit. And then I would call them and interview them and do this whole, like, if we didn't exist, what would you do? And what happened that made you think you had to do something different? And when you did decide to do something different, who else did you look at? And we figured it out that way. But it's it's this idea of good fit. And it's hard because you don't know why they're a good fit necessarily. All you're trying to figure out is, you know, they close fast, they, you know, they're happy, yes, ideally, right, but they close fast, they didn't ask for a discount. The other thing you need to think about is your own business objectives, like sometimes you get these really happy customers, but they don't pay you, right, and so you're going to go out of business trying to serve them, so they've got to actually align with your business as well, and be good for you as a business too, and so you got to kind of throw that all in the pot and mix it up, and then come up with a list
0: thanks for listening to the business of software podcast for more information go to businessofsoftware.org